Hey guys, for this episode I talked to a history professor here from SIUE to get some larger perspective on a story that's going to release this Thursday. As always, the opinions stated in this podcast do not represent those of the Alestal as a whole. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Alessal After Hours. This is our podcast where we go beyond the 600 word limit on the page and discuss the news that's happening on campus and in the world. I'm your current host, John McGowan, and I've got a special guest in the studio with me today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Dalton Brown. I'm a copy editor for the Alestal, SIUE student news organization. Um, and I'm writing a story on the important, importance of having diverse faculty, uh, especially to teach subjects related to that diversity. Uh, have you been, Dalton? How's the new semester treating you? Uh, it's going well. You know, lots of asynchronous courses, so I have to manage my time more than previous semesters, which is proving to be a challenge, but one that I am uh, accepting this semester. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's tough, especially now that there's, like, more in-person classes, too, and you have to, like, balance both. It's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. But um, So, yeah, this article, like you said, it's teaching about race is what I got from it. What is, can you give like a brief explanation of, you know, what have you learned so far and um, maybe how have your views changed since you started this story? So, you know, I've learned a few things from compiling statistics for a graph that goes along with this story, but I've also learned quite a bit from talking to people for this story. So, um, Just really quickly, I'll just run over some of these statistics that I found interesting. Um, You know, according to the most recent SIUE fact book, which was published in uh, 2020, you know, as of 2019, our faculty was 78.42% white compared with the student body, who is only 71.5% white. And, you know, that might sound like a somewhat big difference in percentages, but um, what I learned is the ratio of white students to white faculty ends up being about one-to-one, which, uh, as I learned, is not the case for a couple other racial and ethnic populations here on campus. Uh, For instance, our faculty was only 5.31% Black non-Hispanic compared to 12.5% of the student body. And what that means is for every Black faculty member, there are at least two Black students. On the other hand, um, our faculty was 9.15% Asian compared to just 2.5% of the student body, which actually represents, or which actually suggests an overrepresentation of 6.65%. And what that means is for every Asian student, uh, for every Asian student, there are nearly four Asian faculty members. So, I mean, based on this data, uh, you might conclude that the demographics don't exactly match between our faculty and our student body. Uh, But these are also 2019 numbers. I mean, we'll know what the 2020 numbers are, I imagine, in the next edition of the fact book. But, um, you know, moving away from statistics, I also learned in talking to some people that uh, the school has, you know, an area or two uh, to improve on as far as diversity and inclusion goes. Um, I spoke with Dr. Jennifer Hernandez, and she's a professor who teaches anti-racism and anti-bias instruction for teacher candidates. So I thought she was a really relevant person to talk to about this. And when I asked her, you know, what the university should do to recruit and retain diverse faculty, one of the things she told me was that it can actually be harder for faculty members of color to receive things like tenure or tenure track status. Because what will happen is white students who maybe don't like what their professor of color is saying, 
um, they might leave them more negative course evaluations that they wouldn't leave for their white professors, right? And so that would suggest that there's a racial disparity between faculty members with and without tenure. Um, so I, you know, wanted to see if I could find out, but interestingly, the SIUE fact book doesn't really tell us. I mean, there's an entry for faculty by tenure status, but uh, it's divided by school or department, not by race or ethnic origin. So um, with that being said, though, it's important to note that um, Dr. Hernandez told me the school's anti-racism task force is looking into the tenure track issue and they're working on possible solutions. So. Uh, you know, it's not like the school is unaware or actively ignoring the problem. Uh, they are taking steps to address it. So um, that was definitely something interesting that I learned that I That's had no idea was even a problem. That's, um, I don't know. I feel like, is it, I mean, didn't this story start as like mostly just like teachers of different races teaching about like subjects of um, like African-American history being taught by a white guy or something like that? It's, that's what it started out like, right? Right. Um, it kind of seems is, like you've like blown the whole story up, dude, or open. <laughs> I did not um, know most of this stuff. Like, no, I didn't either. And, you know, originally that was the track that the story took was because, you know, one of our reporters noticed that there was a black history course taught by a white professor. But um, as I talked to people about this story, I also learned about, you know, some of the things that faculty members of color have noticed or, or things that faculty members have experienced. And when they told me about those experiences, I just thought that they were too important to leave out of the story. You know, right. so, so you're right in that the story has taken a slightly larger scope. But I mean, we're still talking about, you know, why it's important to have these kind of diverse perspectives. Because I mean, without uh, these faculty members of color, we wouldn't know that problems like these exist, or we wouldn't know that um, you know, like you said, we didn't, both of us sitting here didn't know that this was even an issue. So that's why we ask is to find out about things like this. Right. Yeah, that's um, all of that information was crazy. It's like, I don't know. It's I mean, obviously, you're going to expect like there's going to be some like, I guess, injustice racially within like, I mean, any kind of administration. Right. But I mean, I what 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 kind of like area are you from, Dalton? <laughs> like, are you from like a big city or like a small city? No, I'm uh, from a pretty small rural town in southern Illinois called Jersey. Same. Yeah, I'm from a small town in central Illinois. And so like, I don't know, I guess like coming to SIUE, I saw like, all, like a lot more racial diversity, both in the student body and the staff mm -hmm. than I did, you know, at, at uh, in my, you know, country town or whatever. And I don't know, I, it, I thought it seemed all right. But like, I mean, yeah, you're right. There's like a huge difference. Like, mm -hmm. that's insane. Well, and that's that's what I thought coming here, too, because, I mean, my hometown of Jerseyville, we're talking about um, at the time I was there, like a 98.6% white population or something like that. And, you know, while I had like one or two professors of color before I came to SIUE, that was largely it. And in talking to a lot of these faculty members, you know, I asked some of them about their own educational backgrounds. And aside from Dr. George, who came here from India, you know, the rest of them largely had, I mean, white teachers growing up. And, you know, that kind of thing can contribute to a homogenous point of view as far as the education you receive. You know, and so that's kind of part of why the story is being written to highlight the importance of having those different perspectives, because, you know, like you and I, we come from small white towns in southern Illinois. And like you said, when we came to SIUE, it looked like um, it was it was much more diverse than the places we had come from. Right, right. So you'd say that racial diversity 
uh, especially in teaching about race, right? Coming from different perspectives to examine one exact perspective when it comes to race is a good thing. Yes, 100%. I would say that it's a good thing um, because diversity of opinion only goes so far, right? I mean, diversity of opinion does not equal diversity of lived experience. And I think that's mostly what we're getting at here. No, I, I know what you mean, though. Like, it's because, I mean, imagine like a white guy's like teaching you know, a, a class about African-American history. I think he can, he can know a lot, certainly. But I think there is, me personally, I think that there is just a little bit more benefit to having a black professor teaching that class because, I mean, he has that experience, right? That's just where I'm coming from. Like, I'm going to be talking to an expert later. I mean, is that what you think? Well, you know, I, I think that certainly um, you don't have to I think that you can, you don't have to, but in my opinion, it helps. Right. I, I mean, you can certainly like research a culture and be knowledgeable about it and be passionate about it and teach it just as well as someone who is originally from that culture. But it's also important for students in the classroom. I mean, for instance, I spoke to uh, Dr. Julie Zimmerman, who is from the anthropology department, which is heavily involved in the Native American studies minor we involve or we offer here at SIUE. And one of the things she said is that there's not a single Native American faculty member in Native American studies. And so, you know, I imagine that can be discouraging for a Native American student to not see themselves represented in their teachers. So while one half of it is, yes, you can be knowledgeable as a white person and you can teach uh, subjects of cultural identity as a white person, it's also important for students to see themselves represented in their teachers at some level. Exactly. And something I think about with that topic specifically is like, I mean, how many Native American history and culture professors are there in the U.S. compared Mm -hmm. to like schools that need Native American history and culture professors? Like, I I bet that it's outnumbered, you know? Right. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Dr. Zimmerman told me was that she said that, you know, while there aren't any Native American faculty members within Native American studies, you know, part of that is due to the history of the United States and in Illinois, uh, as far as, you know, how we've treated Native Americans. I mean, between laws like the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and between people like Ninny and Edwards, I mean, it's just a simple fact that there aren't as many of the vast Native American tribes here in Illinois as there used to be. And in looking at these numbers, while there is a very, very small percentage of Native American faculty here on campus, one of the things Dr. Zimmerman pointed out that I thought was quite interesting is that, you know, just because they are Native American doesn't necessarily mean they're interested in teaching Native American studies. And we shouldn't assume that and we shouldn't force them to do that if that's not something they want to do. Any final thoughts before I switch over our interview to the other guy? Um, Let me just make sure I'm not Uh, You know, I would just say that in talking to some of these faculty members um, and looking at some of these percentages, certainly we're not exactly where we should be at the moment, but it definitely seems like we're headed in the right direction. And it seems like um, some of these faculty members feel like the school is definitely taking the right steps uh, in the right direction as far as diversity and inclusion. So, um, yeah, I think that while there is still some work to do, we're definitely more diverse and more inclusive than we have been in years past. Right. All right. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, listeners, you know, please go read uh, Dalton's article. Do you have any idea what you're going to call it yet? Or mm, That's a good question. I'm thinking something like faculty members emphasize importance of diversity or something like that. Now that could obviously change depending on what our editors think of it. But so far, the one in my head is faculty members emphasize importance of diversity. Something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, you know, this Thursday, go read it. And thank you so much for coming on, Dalton. Thank you for having me. Absolutely right. All right, we've got Dr. Anthony Cheeseboro on the line. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself for our audience? Uh, what are you professor of? How long have you been here? All that stuff. Okay, well, my name is Anthony Cheeseboro. I'm associate professor of history. I've been here, it'll be 25 years in August I've been here. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, at Murray State from 92 to 96. And so, uh, you know, if I had stayed there, I'd be coming, I'd be retiring next year. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm officially an old guy. Uh, I've, I've been a tenure, I've been, I've been tenure, tenure track professor uh, 28 and a half years. And so uh, it's a long time. And I will say this for any young person who's listening, it happens quickly. Um, you know, because uh, I remember when I got my first job, uh, uh, the guy who hired me, the, the chairman of the, of the, of the uh, department at Murray State, he said, you know, you get hired, you know, at first you're young, you know, folks mistake you for a student. And one day, you know, folks start calling you sir. And you, and you realize that you're old. And, uh, but anyway, I'm getting off track. Uh, I earned my PhD at Michigan State University. I originally did a lot of, I originally did my work in, uh, in what nowadays is Republic of Sudan uh, back when I was a student and really up until 2011, uh, Sudan was the biggest country in Africa in terms of land area. But nowadays it's two countries, South Sudan and Republic of Sudan. Uh, Republic of Sudan is the part that's in the north, and that's why I did my research. I did research on uh, a place called the Jazeera, which, as far as I know, is still the world's largest farm. It's a little bit over two million acres, and uh, it was run by the British government. And I, I looked at the process of it going from being uh, owned by the uh, British government to being run by the Sudanese. And um, so I, my, my formal training is in African history. Um, I have a master's degree in Middle Eastern history. I got that from the University of South Carolina. And so it's kind of funny because the last uh, 12 years or so, I spent, I spent a lot of time teaching American history. And, and actually, American history was an area for which I don't really have any formal training. I, I have formal training in uh, African history, Middle Eastern history. I have formal training in European history. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, self-taught when it comes to American history. Fortunately, I'm an American, and that helps a great deal. And, um, you know, I went to public schools and everything. So I was somebody who was quite familiar with the outlines of American history. Plus, I took some American history at the college and graduate level. So, you know, I wasn't completely uh, unschooled in the subject, but it was not an area of formal training for me. <coughs> and uh, so, so therefore, I've taught that a lot. And... Um, before I came to uh, SIUE, I, I taught uh, African-American history and race relations, too. Uh, you know, that was the term they used for it at Murray State. Here, I have not uh, 
formally taught African-American history classes because ever since I've been here, we've had African-American history specialists. Uh, I teach uh, African-American history in the context of teaching the American history surveys. I teach the second part of the U.S. history survey, uh, history 201B. I teach that most often. And uh, usually about once, maybe twice a year, usually online, I teach history 201A, which is the first part of the American history survey. And in the context of those classes, I teach a lot of African-American history. Because to be honest with you, uh, you really can't do American history properly if you don't focus a great deal on African-Americans because the role of African-Americans and how the role of African-Americans has changed throughout the history of the United States has really been central to a lot of the issues that have recurred in, in the history of this country. Right. But anyway, that's, that's, that's uh, my basic story. Right. Was it weird jumping into African-American history and an American history, like, without a formal degree? Not really. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I got a PhD in history, and I got a PhD in master's and a bachelor's in history. And uh, so I know how to teach history. I know how to research history. I know how to formulate historical questions. I, I recognize historical themes. Right. And so especially if I'm teaching at the undergraduate level, uh, teaching a, a survey level course, it, it, that's something that should be pretty easy for most for most PhDs. I mean, a lot of people don't want to get outside of the specialty, but realistically, uh, any PhD should be able to teach a survey level class uh, if they do a decent level of preparation. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, if I were going to do a survey level of class on, say, South Asia, you know, I would have to do a whole lot of preparation. You know, that, that might take me a, several months to really get that under control. Right. Uh, you know, uh, really say true for something like that. Yeah, yeah, several months, maybe a year. But uh, for something like American history, which, you know, as an American, uh, as somebody who's a native of the country, uh, somebody who had a basic foundation in, in public education, uh, you know, I already understood the basic themes in, in the subject. Uh, I had uh, a significant level of familiarity with literature in, in the field. And so teaching a survey class in, in, uh, in American history, it was not hard for me. It wasn't right. hard at all. Yeah. I do want to get into this article. I already told our listeners about it. And uh, so the way... The way the article went was it was kind of inspired by a claim, not a claim, a fact that uh, there was a, a class in the African-American history department uh, taught by a white guy, right? Which seemed a little bit weird at first, you know, because it's, you know, you just wouldn't expect it, right? And so we, we kind of got, or not we, a co-worker Dalton Brown kind of got to start writing this article about this uh, subject and he found a whole lot of uh, a lot of interesting facts about SIUE and the department and the student body and, you know, race and diversity. Uh, and we'll get into those, but I do want to start out with the, uh, the sort of inciting topic, which is teaching about race, who can do it. Uh, so I guess I just, my first question that I want to ask you is, you know, what are your thoughts on a white guy teaching a class about Native American history or even like uh, a black person teaching a class about Asian 
history, like you mentioned, if you know, in that hypothetical, do you think that that is, do you think it'd be better if it was a person of that race teaching that class? Or do you think that there's no difference? Well, I think that we all bring unique insights to anything we teach. And uh, obviously, you know, like I mentioned, South Asian history. I mean, if you get somebody from South India, uh, if you get somebody from Kashmir, uh, if you get somebody from Nepal, if you get somebody from Bangladesh or Pakistan, they're going to have a perspective of having grown up in that region of the world. Uh, they're going to have uh, a much deeper knowledge of the language, of, of at least their own local language, uh, than I would have. Uh, uh, and so obviously there, there are inside perspectives they would have that I would not have if I taught the class. And that's valuable. Uh, but I think all of us bring things of value to classes that we teach. And, you know, it's a question of uh, doing the work. Now, as for something like uh, Black history or classes dealing with race, uh, frankly, I think any American brings something of use to that. Uh, because all Americans have dealt with issues of race. Uh, you know, that's just part of the United States. Uh, now, obviously, all Americans have not been impacted by issues of race the same way. Uh, but, you know, for instance, I'll give you a good example. I remember this is one of the weird things that used to happen to me sometimes. Uh, and this happens to a lot of Black folks. Uh, you know, when, <clears throat> when the issue of racism comes up, uh, somebody might ask me a question, well, what do you, do you think white attitudes on race are, are better now than they were uh, 30 years ago or 20 years ago? You know, how do you feel white attitudes of race are? And I told him, I said, you know, I'm not a white person. I said, and because quite often this will be a white person asking me this. And I said, you know, as a white person, you know, if you're honest with yourself, you know more about white attitudes of racism than I will as a black person. Because in all honesty, you're, you're more likely to, to have a blunt conversation with another white person about race than a white person is likely to come up to me and all of a sudden uh, you know, open up their heart and, and uh, share their feelings on race. Because as we all know, race is a sensitive subject. Uh, most people don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to offend somebody. And so the odds of coming up to a stranger and really pouring out your guts on the issue of race are pretty doggone low. And so, you know, that's just my one example that, uh, you know, we all have inside information. We all have experiences that other people don't have. And they all are valuable. I mean, you know, the way white people see issues of race, it's important. I mean, you know, uh, even though the country is diversifying, uh, you know, uh, white Anglo-Saxon, you know, uh, you know, I guess we really don't want to say wasp because a lot of people are Catholic, but you know, people that we consider white are still 65% of the population of the United States. Uh, you know, minorities, uh, people who traditionally have not been considered white are 35% of the population right now. And uh, if census trends continue, uh, we'll probably be a majority uh, around 2045, 2050, somewhere in that area. I mean, I may still be alive at that time. I don't know, you know, I, I might witness that. But, you know, 65, the perspective of 65% of the population is significant. Now, 
what I would say is that if a white person is going to teach a class on African-American history, then they owe it to themselves to do some serious research. They owe it to, them, to themselves to do some serious talking and some serious understanding. And uh, the successful white scholars of African-American history have done that. Right. And so to me, that's, that's not an issue. So I, uh, and I, I want to say, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, but I do agree. Like, I think that, I think that anybody can teach a certain class. I also think that there are certain, you know, like you said, everybody has their own like racial experience and perspective. And I think that can definitely benefit a class in different ways, you know, and, but I, but I hadn't thought about, uh, how, how like a white person's racial experience could benefit teaching a class about black history. Right. Cause I mean, nobody, this is going to sound weird, but nobody knows like a white person's privilege better than a white person, you know, like nobody knows like how much they've benefited better than them. And, uh, I think that combined with obviously, like you said, the research, you know, that should be expected in any course you're teaching, but, uh, it can definitely offer a unique perspective. And I guess it's, it's also just good for starting a conversation, you know, like, I guess what you're supposed to do in college. Yeah, well, you know, the, the question of white privilege is interesting because, uh, yes, obviously a white person is in a position to know how they benefit from whiteness more than, uh, say, I would. But you have to be honest with yourself. I mean, there are a lot of people who are really resentful at the notion of white privilege and, and uh, would very quickly deny it. I mean, you have to be willing to admit right. that such a thing exists. Uh, now, one of the things I always look at uh, when I talk about issues of race, uh, you know, something that with which I've had experience is to talk about issues of gender. Uh, as, a, as a young adult, I became much more conscious of issues of gender, conscious of issues of gender. And that consciousness has continued to grow uh, throughout my life. I remember the first time that I really, really, really ever, it really ever dawned on me just how different things could be for men and women. Uh, was when I was a graduate student at Michigan State University. And I was down in the cafeteria. It was, we lived in a really big dorm that had a cafeteria in the dorm. Uh, you know, Michigan State's uh, it's way bigger than SIU. It's about, I think it's about 53,000 students right there, right mm -hmm. there right now. So it's, it's, it's like U of I, you know, really big research one school. And so we were down in the cafeteria studying. And it was about maybe 9.30 at night or so. It was like uh, January, uh, I guess, maybe somewhere between November and January. It was, you know, it was, it was one at a time, you know, late fall, one at a time. And uh, the young lady I was studying with mentioned something about going to the library. And she said, you know, and she just said, well, you know, I would go to the library right now, but I can't. And I said, well, why can't you go to the library? And she said, well, you know, it's late at night. I don't want to go walking by myself. And, you know, I, I was, just, you know, I was kind of dumbstruck because, uh I'm old now, but I'm, I'm still a big guy. You know, I'm not somebody, you know, I'm, I'm not so old that I'm completely bent over. Uh, I'm not likely the kind of guy that somebody just walks up and picks a fight with. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that I'm a particularly tough guy, but you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fairly big guy. And uh, I'm, I'm not gonna be approached that way, generally speaking. And the idea of being afraid to be on campus and walk to someplace, it, just, it, it, it had never occurred 
you know, the idea that I would have to watch myself that way just had not occurred to me. And because, you know, like I said, it's a college campus, a pretty safe environment. And, you know, that, that had never occurred to me. But it's one of the things that really opened my eyes and made me begin to appreciate things that women went through that I, as a man, don't, don't have to go through. And so, you know, I will never have the insight into being a woman that a woman has. You know, even though I'm married and I have uh, two daughters, you know, I, I, I will never have the insight into being a woman that a woman has, but I can make a serious effort to not be ignorant. And more importantly, I feel that I have to be prepared to accept that, you know, when women mention certain things, that, you know, even if I can't see it, even if I can't understand it, I have to have a certain amount of good faith that they're not just making this up. And, you know, that's one of the things about discussions of race. I think that's one of the hard things uh, for some people, you know, speaking as a Black person, I think that's one of the hard things for people that aren't Black sometimes to to, to, to deal with, to, to, there's difficulties a lot of times in accepting things that uh, Black people might claim. Uh, I'll give you a good example of this is something that everybody saw last year, you know, when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Uh, I think that that really ripped the curtain off for a lot of people uh, because, you know, the man was, the man clearly was in no position to threaten the police officer that he killed. Uh, he clearly told the police officer that he was struggling, that he couldn't breathe. Uh, but the police officer, very, you know, he basically was very nonchalant. He didn't, he didn't even particularly seem to be mad or angry, but, you know, he kept his knee on his neck until he died. And, uh, you know, there was a crowd around saying, no, 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 don't do this, don't do this. And the other police, you know, made no attempt to try to, to hold back the officer who was killing the person. They were more concerned with holding back the crowd. And I think that that particular situation for a lot of white people and for a lot of people who weren't black, period, uh, was, was a glimpse into something that a lot of African-Americans have complained about over the years of being brutalized for no good reason. Uh, you know, one thing that happened very recently, of course, is the situation on January the 6th when you had the protesters storming the Capitol. And, uh, you know, Many people just said, you know, they could not imagine a, a hostile crowd of uh, African-Americans storming the Capitol and not a single one getting, you know, actually one lady got shot. But, you know, not only. I mean, if I saw if I saw African-Americans storming the Capitol, I'm. Yeah, if I saw that on TV, I'm pretty sure most of them would get shot. Not yeah, just I, I, I'm pretty sure that would have been a mass casualty event. Yeah. And not only that. I don't think there's any way on earth they would have been allowed to simply walk away. I think there would have been a, a serious effort to apprehend as many people as possible. Because right now you have a situation where the FBI is combing over pictures trying to identify people. I think in all likelihood, if that had been African-Americans, if it had been some Muslim group or something, uh, they would have quickly called up forces and they would have had the little zip ties out. They would have simply arrested everybody. And a lot of folks probably would have been in detention uh, a few days, and, and then they would have sorted out, you know, who was guilty, who wasn't guilty. Uh, that would have happened. It, it, it would it would have been the reverse of what you have right now, where everybody was allowed to go home, and then uh, the government started picking out people that they saw on video. Instead, it would have been a situation where everybody would have been arrested, 
And then as authorities went over the video, they would say, well, you know, you are going to face charges. And they say, well, you know, you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time. You can go home. Or they might look at somebody and say, well, you were, you shouldn't have been there. You, you're going to face uh, uh, misdemeanor charges, no trespassing or something. And I, I think it would have worked out that way as opposed to what we have right now, where basically the FBI has to look, you know, basically look for needles in a haystack because they allowed everybody to leave. Right. Yeah, no, they, the, uh, the capital thing is a great thing to bring up because it's, it always just amazes me at the difference of what it would be like. Because, I mean, you, you, look at the, you look at the protests from over the summer and you see Trump tweeting about, you know, they were, they were outside the White House or whatever, and he's like, he's tweeting, oh, like when the looting starts, the shooting starts, right? And meanwhile, yeah. they're literally looting like the main like podium from Congress. And, you know, there was no shooting, one shot, but there was no shooting, you know, it was, um, it's, it's, I mean, a lot of people say it's like two different Americas and I totally agree. Yeah, well, you know, as I said before, it's the kind of thing that sometimes stuff has to be put before people before they'll admit it. Now, I'm sure that, and and the thing about it is that there are people who, 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 who have seen that evidence and they still will deny it. They will still try to work up some rationale to explain why things were done differently. And, uh, you know, that's to be expected. Some people, you know, are really, really, really uh, wedded to a, to a point of view. And they simply will not let that go, even in the face of evidence. And, uh, you know, that's something to be expected in dealing with people. So do you think that somebody who is unable to accept that kind of racial difference in America, who's unable to accept white privilege should they even if they are like a history you know expert should they be allowed to teach a class about african-american history well you know the thing about it in academia you know if you get hired and if you're qualified you're going to teach now what happens is that probably you know if people really have negative attitudes or if they are really ignoring evidence that's right before them uh, that's going to get out and uh those are people who probably aren't going to get good teaching reviews. They're probably people who aren't going to be popular. Uh, I think that the process will tend to weed people out out like that or or, or really tend to make them unpopular. Um, You know, I think about a situation, this was many years ago, but this was a situation at Carbondale where you had a, it was actually a history professor who was an avowed white supremacist uh, who taught a class and, um, I don't know what the class was, but one of the things he talked about was what was known as the zebra killings. The zebra killings happened in San Francisco back in the 1970s. And basically you had a group of of African-Americans. They were members of the Nation of Islam. Uh, I I actually, I I don't wanna, they were kind of a Nation of Islam offshoot. They weren't actual uh, Nation of Islam people. They were people who had had a connection to it, who then went off on their own. These guys had killed a number of white people. And eventually, uh, eventually, the mayor of, of uh, San Francisco, uh, Sam Moscone at this time, and he's really famous in the case because you've heard of Harvey Milk, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, well, anyway, he, he was the guy who was killed with Harvey Milk, you know, who was a, Harvey Milk, of course, was a, was a groundbreaking uh, gay politician and political activist. But anyway, but this is a separate story. But basically, Sam Moscone, uh, gave an order for the police to just pull over random black men and just search anybody, which, you know, obviously was unfair. But the point I wanted to make is that this teacher 
assigned a book about uh, assigned a, a book about this that apparently had been written by a white supremacist group. And my problem with that is it's not so much that he had the students read a book by a white supremacists, it's that he, from as far as I could tell, he wasn't upfront about the nature of the source that he assigned. Right. And uh, I think that as a professor, if you're going to give students a book, uh, you, you ought to let them know who wrote the book. You ought to let them, you ought, they ought to have some kind of uh, 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 of uh, knowledge of what they're reading. I mean, because you know, like for instance, there. You know, I teach South African history, and one of the books I always have folks read is Native Life in South Africa. Native Life in South Africa was a book written by uh, a fellow by the name of Saul Pliny. Uh, Saul Pliny was one of the early members of what became. Matter of fact, he was one of the founding members of what became the ANC, African National Congress, the political party that still runs South Africa. And of course, Nelson Mandela was one of the most famous members. But the book Native Life in South Africa was written with the purpose of trying to uh, get political su support among British people to uh, oppose what became known as the Natives Land Act in South Africa. In other words, it was a book specifically written to pursue a, po a political goal. You know, another good example of this is in American history, you know, when Tom Paine wrote the pamphlet Common Sense. Uh, Common Sense was clearly a pamphlet that was designed uh, to put forward the argument that the American colonies should get their independence. And uh, a professor should always make it clear that, you know, look, this is, a, this is, an explicitly political document. This document is meant to argue a political argument. You know, I think one of the most dangerous things in academia is when people pretend uh, to be objective or to be even-handed when they really have a point of view. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a point of view. Uh, what I have a problem with are people who are dishonest about their point of view. I mean, if you have a point of view, uh, tell people your point of view. You know, don't don't pretend some sort of objectivity that you don't have. So I guess I just wanted to ask, is there anything that maybe you're having trouble with on your story or you just want to probe more that maybe you want me to ask him? Well, I, you know, I haven't gotten much response from the Black Studies faculty in general. So I, I would be interested to hear if he's been faced with any ignorance from his white students, um, you know, whether intentionally or not. Yeah, it's, that's, one of the, that's one of the odd things about my career. Uh, I've had students who didn't like my class. I've had students who criticized me. Uh, but by and large, I, I have not run into a lot of criticism of me that looked blatantly racial. Uh, you know, some of the criticism that was of me was stuff that um, was fair. I, I, you know, in all, in all honesty, I can be slow grading papers. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually, that's one of the things I'm actually better about now that we're teaching online I and mean, everything's on the computer. Is, is you know, it's kind of hard to uh, not just get in there and get to it. It's actually easier for me. But, you know, that was a criticism of mine. But I really had problems uh, with students who uh, were hostile to me. And, you know, I don't know why. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, some people would tease me that, yeah, you know, uh, 
maybe I was intimidating or whatever, but, uh, but frankly, I, I don't, you know, even, even if, even if they did think I was some kind of tough guy. And like I say, that might've been true 20 years ago. I mean, now I'm old and I don't see that being an issue, but even if I was physically imposing, uh, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with what people, with, with what people write. And so that was never much of an issue for me. Uh, but I know there are people uh, for that, for whom that's been a, a bigger issue. Now, I see a lot of times I say for women, that's been a bigger issue. I think, uh, you know, race and gender tend to pull together. And there are times when black women uh, in positions of authority get grief that black men don't always get. Uh, you know, gender plays a role. I, I don't think it's an accident that a black man became president before before a white woman. Because, um, I, I, you know, if you look at American history, uh, black men got the vote, you know, over 50 years, before, you know, over 50 years before white women got the vote. Uh, because uh, in America in the 19th century, no women voted. And so mm -hmm. once blacks became citizens, it was never an issue that, you know, there would be male privilege. Now, I do know of, uh, of uh, men who've had a hard time uh, with uh, reviews, but one thing I will say is that probably one of the things that is probably re reason why I've not had as many run-ins like that with students is that I tend to try to talk about stuff within a historical context and not a contemporary context. But you seem like a and very fair, like you seem like you're, you're very fair on all the issues, you know? I try to be. And, 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 and the other thing I'll just say this too. Uh, now, in the classroom, I'm the expert on history. I'm, I'm the guy with the doctorate. I'm the guy who, I haven't published a lot, but I published. Uh, you know, I'm the expert. But when it comes to issues of politics, we're all equals as citizens. Uh, you know, the dumbest uh, guy in the street or, you know, the least educated person in the street is my equal as a citizen and is entitled to her or his opinion. And I may not like that person's opinion, but as a citizen, that person is entitled to an opinion no matter how ignorant and ill-informed I think it is. And so I've always tried to bear that in mind that, you know, if, if I'm going to show my expertise, it's going to be within a professional context. I'm not going to try to just say, well, you know, I'm the professor, and so therefore I know everything and you know nothing. Uh, people don't respond well to being told that they're dumb or don't, they don't know anything. I mean, that's, that's something that if you really want to actually teach people, you want to avoid doing that. Now, I'm, sorry, I'm not saying that the people who, who've all gotten bad ratings did that, but I'm just saying that for me and my success to the degree I've had success, that's something that I've always tried to do. I've always tried to make people feel that, that they should be comfortable with their opinions. Right, right. So even if I think they should change. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, tr I try to do that. <laughs> and I, I think I fail most of the time. But I, I'm trying to think of because, you know, basically what I asked everyone else, uh, I started out asking about like their educational background. Like, you know, did you have diverse teachers growing up? And what effect did that have on the education you got? So I mean, I would be interested to hear if he had diverse teachers growing up. And I would be interested to hear how that affected his education. <sighs> Yeah, I, I would say that I've tried to learn from everybody uh, that I was in a position to learn from. I mean, uh, 
I, I had a variety of different professors. I mean, some of my professors were very famous people uh, who, you know, if you know the, if you know the historical discipline, uh, I, I had the privilege of being a student of some people who within history are quite famous. And uh, so I had, the, I had the advantage of having some really excellent professors. Uh, and uh, over time, they were more diverse. Now, when I was at Georgia, University, University of Georgia is where I got my bachelor's degree. That's where I started. Uh, the faculty wasn't particularly diverse. I, I, I think that every, all faculty members I had were white in, in the history department. I think, uh, I think I had like one white woman in history and everybody else was a white man. So they weren't particularly diverse. Uh, when I got to my master's program, which is at the University of South Carolina, uh, I TA'd for, for uh, a black professor or two. Uh, really, I started having much more diverse professors when I got my PhD program. That's when I started having a lot of black professors. Now, I will say this, however, I'm the son of a teacher. And uh, there were a lot of teachers in my family. So I've been around uh, black people. and I, I, I grew up around black people in education. And I, I knew a lot of black professionals as a child. So I've always been around uh, black people. I know the church I grew up in South Carolina, uh, one of the members went on to become uh, the first black person on the uh, South Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been around people, uh, uh, educated people uh, from my, uh, you know, from my ethnic group, from my demographics. And so I was always used to being around uh, people of color who had achieved. That, that wasn't anything new for me. Um, I also asked them what the school should do to recruit, retain, and or recruit, hire, and retain diverse faculty members. So I would also be interested to hear um, what he thinks the university should do or do differently to recruit and retain diverse faculty members. Well, I think the most important thing to do is to actively recruit people and to really be honest with yourself. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think administration has to be on God, you know, if they really want to do a good job, one of the things they have to really watch out for is the tendency to maybe just say the right thing or to uh, kind of say what people want to hear. And a lot of times that's easier, it's easier to, <coughs> excuse me, say what people want to hear than it is to actually do the hard work of making it happen. Right. Uh, you know, actually recruiting people, uh, working to uh, have a fair environment, uh, working to have fair processes, that's something that you really have to be active at doing. Uh, and the thing about it is that academics is the kind of environment where, you know, they're going to, you know, the great majority of people in an academic environment are going to say that they are for diversity. They're going to say that they're for non-discrimination. They're going to say that they're for fairness. And a lot of people are honestly going to believe that's what they're doing. But if you look at what people actually do, a lot of times they come up short of this. Right. And so the question is, you know, what do you, you know, you have to bridge the gap between people 
stating good intentions and people actually living up to good intentions. I mean, that's, that's, not a, that's, that's not an easy thing to do all the time. And you have to be conscious about it. And you really, you know, it's kind of like I'm a heavy guy. Uh, you know, I've been on diets in my life before. I know I'm supposed to diet. Uh, but it is so easy to eat too much. Uh, you know, I might not even realize I'm doing it. But, you know, I really like eating. And it's easy to eat too much. Uh, you know, sometimes I might know I'm doing it, but it's like, oh, God, I just really want to eat that. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's the way it is with habits of racism and discrimination. Uh, you know, even when people feel they're not the right thing to do, it is so easy to fall back into what you've always done. That is and, such a good analogy. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, that, I think it, it makes total sense because, I mean, it is, I mean, obviously the, the easy way is the way that kind of excludes people and not making an effort to making things more diverse is just one less thing to not worry about. So, I'm, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense because not that it's the right thing, but it, it just makes sense why maybe even if they, they know that they have these good intentions, they know that it's the right thing to do. I mean, imagine how hard it must have been like to deal with COVID and then also deal with the the Black Lives Matter protests and the response to that at the same time, you know? I think, yeah. I think uh, I mean, I, I like SOU, I like our administration for the most part. And I think, um, personally, I think they did a pretty good job responding to the Black Lives Matter protests. But I think another university totally could have been like, okay, like we have to focus on this COVID stuff right now. Like this, this race stuff is secondary. Do you think SOU yeah, well, response was good? Well, I, I, th I think, you know, I, I, you know, as I said before, I think the whole George Floyd thing, it was so literally in people's faces that you could not uh, avoid it. Right. I mean, it's not, you know, th there have been situations uh, where the video was grainy or, or, you know, one of the things that police love to say is that, well, you know, you didn't see all of the video. You only saw this part that makes us look bad. If you'd seen the whole thing, uh, you would understand. Well, we literally saw the whole thing with George Floyd. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it, he, he, it took almost nine minutes to kill him. <clears throat> and it was clear that at the time of his death, uh, what was being done to him was unjustifiable. And it, it, it made, I remember the day it happened and, and, and I was watching TV and I was watching a, 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 one of these, one of these uh, uh, cable news channels. And so, oh my goodness, we have this terrible footage and, you know, we're going to show this. This might be upset. And it, it got on every. It, it, every news media showed it and it was the kind of thing that even the most conservative media did not try to justify that uh you know the uh, fraternal order police which uh, which is the uh, major police union in america which in my opinion is pretty notorious for justifying just about you know the only thing i've the only thing i've never known them to justify is police accused of sexual assault. I mean, you know, you can't obviously say you attack somebody because you fear for, the, for your life. And so that's something they don't defend. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but, but the, the killing of George Floyd was something that, you know, even the most hardcore members of the FOP, they had seen, you no, know, look, this is wrong. You know, this uh, Chauvin, uh, Chauvin, I think that's his name, you know, he needs to be arrested and tried. And, uh, and, and so therefore it was so in your face that, uh, people in positions of responsibility knew they couldn't avoid it. I mean, it was something that just had to be dealt with. I mean, uh, and it had to be dealt with along with uh, COVID. I mean, I think that 
you know, COVID is one of these uh, things that really nothing in our lives could have prepared us for it because, you know, the people who really experienced the last situation like this, are all, you know, people old enough to really remember they're all dead. And uh, so I think we're still adjusting to COVID. Uh, I think that's one of the big problems. That's one of the reasons why America has had such a um, high level of, of infection is that it's still something that people really have not wrapped their heads around. And I would also be interested to hear what advice he has for students who, like I said, might feel discouraged when they don't see themselves represented in the classroom. Well, the one thing I would tell any student is to work hard as you possibly can. Uh, you know, good grades have a way of uh, overcoming even racist teachers. Uh, Right. You know, um, if, if you do well, uh, you tend to impress people. I, I, and, and, you know, now this teacher here, I can't even remember his name now, but and I'm not implying that he was a racist person because I, I, I didn't know him at that level. But my freshman year at the University of Georgia, this was 1979, a very long time ago, I took a freshman level American history class. And I remember the professor, I remember he had a lecture one time where he lectured about the amendments that came after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendments, where he gave a lecture where he said that they really shouldn't have been constitutional because uh, the occupied states in the South were forced to uh, ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments, even though they were under military occupation. And he said, you know, that really, he said, I don't think that that was politically legitimate. And I find myself saying, oh my goodness, uh, this does not sound like the most receptive professor. Uh, but I, I really made good grades in this class. And I remember, and it was a big class, and I, I didn't really say much in, this, in that class. But I remember one day I turned in an exam, and he looked up and he said, oh, well, Mr. Cheeseboro, do you have another A for me this time? And I was just shocked. I had no idea this man knew who I was. Now, in all honesty, I mean, uh, it's like 60 people in the classroom. There might have been two other black people. So, you know, it probably, it probably wasn't that hard to know, you know, realistically. It probably wouldn't have been that hard to know who I was. But, but he had never given me indication that he, any indication that he knew who I was. But, you know, he said, oh, I hope you have another good grade. But the point is, is that I was a good student. Professors like good students. Professors like students who, who make good grades and who understand what they're talking about. And uh, that's, that's my biggest advice to students. Work hard, make your best grades. Uh, because the better you are, the easier it's going to be for you. I mean, now, grades are not going to overcome all racism. They're not going to overcome all opposition. But if you do what you're supposed to do and you do it to, your, to the best of your ability, it makes it much, much, much harder for people who might not be inclined to be supportive and receptive to undermine you. So you're basically saying when you're dealing with particularly racist professors, you just got to kill them with success? Yeah, I mean, I, I, as a student, success is your absolute best weapon. Sure. I mean, you know, if, if, if you're in your major, uh, you know, hopefully if you got a major, it's something that you're good at, something that you have a proclivity towards. Uh, excellence tends to over, 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 overcome people. 
I mean, uh, you know, I'm gonna give you a really hackneyed example because, and really, these are kind of dangerous examples because most people don't have this kind of ability. But, you know, everybody talked about the death of Hank Aaron last week. Uh, you know, uh, I, I remember I was 14 years old, coming home from a Little League game, sitting down eating dinner on a TV tray when I saw him break Babe Ruth's record. But, but the point is, is that he was so good that people had to acknowledge him. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily the best example because most of us are not, most of us human beings are not exceptional the way he was. I mean, most of us aren't that exceptional as scholars. And, you know, Lord knows most of us aren't that exceptional in terms of athleticism. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that uh, it's hard to deny hard work. It's hard to deny people who uh, maximize their ability. Right. Uh, anytime, anytime you do that, uh, you tend to undermine uh, criticism. And uh, now, obviously, that's not a perfect solution. And uh, there are going to be situations where, and I, I, I just say it as a black person, unfortunately, uh, situations where you aren't treated fairly, that's it's just kind of life. Uh, and you, you have to learn how to, to navigate it, you know. Uh, that's, uh, I wish I had something better to say, but uh, I know young black students, they, they have to be prepared for that. I mean, because there are going to be times when you're not treated fairly, but in all situations, do your best. If you do your best, you undermine people who might do you, who might do you wrong. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that makes sense, because I mean, you know, you can go out and protest. Obviously, there were so many protests this summer, and I think that's definitely the right thing to do. But ultimately, what you're going to have to do until actual change comes is learn to navigate the day-to-day -day life of being, like, you know, oppressed, right? And, um, you know, I guess, I mean, if you want to succeed in school or if you want to deal with professors, succeeding is the best way to do it. And, I mean, that's the best way for white people too, but it's, you can't deny that it's it's a little bit unfair. It has to be that's forced on black students, right? It, it, it is forced on black students. But the other thing I'll say this too, uh, now everybody has their own way of doing it. But one thing I will argue is that as a black person, one thing I've never really worried about too much was trying to make white people comfortable. You know, a lot of people say, I don't want to be threatening. I don't want to be seen as disruptive. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going around, you know, I'm going to beat you up or I'm going to be mean or whatever, but I never really worked, you know, like people say, well, you know, you have to dress a certain way or, or I remember when I was at Michigan State, <clears throat> I had a professor who told me, I said, your accent is too Southern, you know, you may not get a job. And I remember telling the guy, I said, you know, I know my field, I'm a smart guy. Uh, any person who is more worried about my accent than what I have to say is stupid. And I'm not worried about trying to impress stupid people. Uh, I, I want to deal with folks who actually appreciate what I know. Now, the irony is, is that people have told me I don't really have a Southern accent anymore. I mean, but that might well happen. I've been, I've, I've been living in the uh, Midwest, you know, for the last uh, 36 years. Uh, 32 of them have been in the Midwest. So, I, so, you know, I may have lost my accent simply from not living in the South anymore. So I, so I don't know. But my point is that, you know, if you go around working too much on trying to make people comfortable, uh, in my opinion, I think that it tends to uh, trigger 
you know, bullying responses. I mean, because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things, it's kind of a hard thing to say. I mean, like when, when, I, when I've been in a situation where I've had to do with police, I've always been respectful, but I never act afraid. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if, 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 if you are out in the woods, the people always tell you that if you see a dangerous animal, don't run from them. I'm not calling the police bears or dogs, but, you know, as organisms, we all have similar responses. You know, when people see fear, uh, that tends to trigger a certain response in them. And I'm, I always say, you know, be calm, be respectful, never, don't, don't, don't be fearful of people. Look folks in the eye, deal with them in a straightforward manner. Don't worry excessively about making people feel comfortable because quite often that will trigger the exact opposite, the response that you don't want. Right. Uh, no, I think that's a good attitude to have too, is just, you know, try your best, but ultimately if somebody has a problem with you, it's their problem, you know? Um, and for my last question, I just want to kind of bring this full circle. And this is, this, this is a big question. So <laughs> try and answer it the best you can, but you okay. know, we, we've been talking about you know, how, how do we make, you know, universities great for everybody? How do we make the classroom good for everybody? How, how is it that, you know, if, if a white guy is interested in black history, like how can we get to a point where it's, you know, comfortable for everybody to have him teach that class and vice versa for any other race, any other class? Uh, how do we get to a point where there's no discomfort in any of this, where it's all just normalized? Basically, how do we fix America, Dr. Anthony Cheeseboro? Um, well, you know, I, I don't think that racism is something that ultimately is solvable. I think that racism is kind of, you know, it's kind of like, you know, people right now, people talking about COVID and, you know, and, you know, COVID is one of the, um, um, I, I forgot the, the name of the, the, the type of uh, SARS. virus. SARS. But, uh, what do you say? It's a SARS virus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the viruses with, with, with the crown. Uh, and, and, you know, these are, these are viruses that we've been dealing with for years. You know, the common cold is related to, to COVID. And uh, the thing about it is that a lot of scientists have said that, you know, COVID will probably never go away. Over time, it will probably become less uh, deadly because ultimately, you know, a virus, a virus that succeeds uh, does not kill its host. You know, you know, the cold is an ideal virus in the sense that you catch it every year, you get sick. But, you know, those cold viruses manage to re reproduce and they're around next year to get you cold. And they're around to get you sick the next go around. And, and whereas, you know, viruses that kill everybody, you know, they're, they're going to end up dying because they're not going to have anybody to infect. Uh, now, the point I'm making is that racism is like a virus. It's going to mutate. I mean, it you know, as a, as, a, as a professor of history, every time there has been an advance against racism, racism has made a change to that uh, advance and has always managed to come back. And so I, I would tell anybody who wants to make the world re less racist, you should look at yourself as uh, somebody who's basically kind of maintaining, you know, doing a program. I mean, like, if you wanted to get in shape, if you wanted to be a bodybuilder, you know, you don't lift weights for two years and then stop. Because the moment, because when you stop, eventually you're going to go back to not looking like a bodybuilder. You have to constantly maintain it. And so 
that's the issue of racism. You know, we're not going to cure racism. Racism is something that it's indelible. I mean, it's 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 in the it's in the it's in the social DNA of America. And we are going to be repairing the damage of racism in different ways every generation. And I think that we'll make a, a great deal of progress if we actually acknowledge that this is not a curable condition. It's a treatable condition. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, HIV. There's no cure for HIV. But you can take drugs that will allow you to live a long and productive life. And uh, racism is the same thing. You know, we're, we're not going to cure it. We're not going to defeat it. But it's a manageable illness. But you can only manage it if you acknowledge that it exists and you're prepared to take the steps necessary to keep it under control. So that's my answer. Right. I think I, I agree. Um, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? No, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I appreciate you asking me to participate. It's, you know, it's nice to share my thoughts. I, I, I like being able to share my thoughts uh, with folks and I, I appreciate you giving me the, the uh, way to do that. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, well, that's going to do it for a lesson after hours for us today, guys. Uh, make sure to keep listening next week. Make sure to listen to our other podcast, the Alessal News Bite. And uh, yeah, that's going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for listening and bye-bye. All right. Goodbye.